please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Philippians. This evening, as we close out our, uh, this, this Lord's Day, uh, this Easter Sunday, I'd like to spend some time reflecting upon the resurrection of Christ. And so we'll be in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. And please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Hear now the word of the Lord from Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might, may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We, we pray, O oh Lord, that as we spend the next few moments reflecting upon uh, this wonderful passage of Scripture, would you show us Jesus Christ? Would you uh, reveal him to us? May we see him with the eyes of faith. May we hold fast to our precious Savior, who is indeed even now holding fast to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Sitting in a Roman prison cell, awaiting what may be the final word on his fate at the hands of the Roman authorities, the Apostle Paul sat down with Timothy, his fellow minister, his confidant, his friend, to write a letter to the churches in Philippi. The letter, which will essentially serve as some of Paul's final words to these Christians in Philippi, is written in part to encourage and exhort the Philippians to press on in their faith, to live amongst one another in love and humility. And as he says time and again throughout this letter, he's writing to them so that they would rejoice in the Lord, to celebrate the mighty things that God has done for his people in Christ Jesus, our Lord. These Christians in Philippi, like Paul himself, have experienced hardship and suffering. and His encouragement to them is to persevere to the end, to continue to live lives that please the Lord. Our passage this evening in Philippians chapter 3 comes in the middle of a section of this letter in which Paul is, is talking about his former life in Judaism. He's uh, setting up a great contrast. Here in Philippians chapter 3, Paul is ultimately telling you and me that we cannot trust in our own obedience to save us. He does this by talking about all those things that he at one time attempted to gain through adherence to the law as a Pharisee. We see those things outlined in verses 2 through 6. Look there with me in Philippians chapter 3 verses 2 through 6. Paul writes, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus 
and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul's command or word to the Philippians in verse 3 is that they must put no confidence in the flesh. And he shows them right after that, what it looks like to put confidence in the flesh. All of those aspects of his former life that he lists in verses 5 and 6 are Paul's uh, telling the Philippians that he used to put his confidence in those things, in the flesh. And yet, he set it all aside. Paul laid claim to all of these things and more before Christ stopped him in his tracks on the way to Damascus. Paul, the Pharisee, put great confidence in his outward obedience to God's law, in his ability to perform the duties that the law required. But that confidence, as we see in verses 7 through 11, was misplaced. All throughout chapter 3, Paul is showing you and me that if we boast in anything, we must boast only in the Lord. To boast not in our own achievements, but only in Christ, resting upon His finished work alone for salvation. Not anything that you or I or the Apostle Paul or the best Christian who ever lived could hope to do. And in verses 7 through 11, Paul seeks to drive home this point. The Jewish world in which Paul lived, in which he was raised, thought that those things that Paul had, uh, those things that he outlined in verses 5 and 6 that he had before coming to Christ were incredibly worthwhile. They put a lot of stock in someone's religious zeal, in someone's heritage and background, and whether or not he lived a life which outwardly conformed to the Old Testament law. The Jewish leaders of this day thought that all of those things brought Paul much gain. But he reverses the script. He subverts their expectations by saying that all of those things are worthless. All of it is loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. This statement that Paul makes in verses uh, in verse 7 and then that he repeats in verse 8 that Paul is, is counting all those things as loss for the sake of Christ is shocking to someone who thinks the way that Paul used to. And it's shocking to prove a point. It shows here how dedicated Paul is to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul seeks, as he tells the Corinthians, to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. And it's in that knowledge that Paul will find true satisfaction, true gain. Following Christ, knowing Christ, as he says here, is the overarching goal of his life and his ministry. Paul is so enraptured with the loveliness of Christ that it can't help but come out in every aspect of his life. 
And he wants his readers in Philippi and his readers throughout all the ages to know Christ as well, to know Christ as he knows him, to be captivated by the glory of Christ, to know the surpassing worth of the knowledge of Christ, and to follow Christ, knowing that it's only in Christ that we have righteousness and peace, that we have justification and faith, that we can ever hope to have holiness and eternal life. Look at this contrast that Paul is here setting up. He, he talks about all these things that he used to have in his former life as a Hebrew of Hebrews. But he's saying that all of that, whatever the world might have seen as gain, whatever my Jewish uh, uh, family members and, and friends and uh, synagogue leaders might have thought as gain, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. All of these former things in his previous life that were reckoned to him by this system of religion that made him righteous, all of them are loss. Paul was thought to be a devout and dedicated Jew because of this list of accomplishments. And yet he says, I'm going to lay it all aside. For since coming to Christ, since acquiring knowledge of Christ, Paul has come to understand that all those things he thought counted to him as righteousness actually contributed to his unrighteousness. Because he did all of those things apart from faith in Christ. All of Paul's moral striving, all of his efforts, all of his zeal for God's word and for uh, loving God's people counted against him rather than for him because he was doing it all apart from Christ. And so any supposed gain that he had was actually reckoned to him as loss for the sake of Christ. And he goes on and reiterates this in verse 8, and he says, really, even, even more than that, after coming to know Christ, Paul says that everything, he counts everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, he says. Compared to knowing Christ, all is rubbish, Paul says. All is rubbish. It is garbage. The word that Paul uses to describe his own supposedly righteous works in verse 8 is emphatic. These things that once counted to him as righteousness, or he believed would contribute to his righteousness, are utterly useless. They are filth. Paul doesn't just reject them. He actively despises them. And he sees them as nothing but dung, worthy only to be discarded and forgotten. Dear ones, Paul wants the Philippians, he wants you and me to know Christ. Not just as, as Pastor John briefly talked about this morning, uh, to morally uh, uh, or mentally assent to the facts of the life of Christ. No, he wants us, the Apostle Paul wants us to know Christ intimately, to know him personally. He says here that he seeks to know Christ Jesus, my Lord, in verse 8 wants to know the surpassing worth of, uh, he wants us to, to understand the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my 
Lord. This is not the typical way that, that Paul talks about Christ. He usually says Christ the Lord, Christ our Savior. But here he's saying Christ my Lord. He says that this personal, intimate knowledge of Christ is what we all need. It's knowledge of my Lord, my Savior, Christ Jesus. Beloved, all the knowledge about Christ cannot save us, will not save us. There are many people who have studied the life of Christ, who know a lot of details about what the Bible says about Christ, who are doomed to eternal torment in hell. Knowing about Christ is not enough. We need to know Christ. He needs to be our Lord. Only knowing Christ as my Lord will save me. Only knowing Christ as your Lord will save you. And that's what Paul wants to show us here. This surpa- the surpassing worth of the knowledge of Christ as our personal Savior and Lord. For it's only by that kind of knowledge that we will be saved. So in this passage, the Apostle Paul shows you and me that knowledge of Christ means a few different things. He talks about and expounds this knowledge of Christ. And the first thing that he shows us is that knowing Christ means knowing that the law will not save you. Knowing Christ also means knowing that righteousness depends on faith in Christ. And knowing Christ means knowing his sufferings by sharing in them and by knowing the power of his resurrection. The first thing that Paul wants to show us here is that knowing Christ means that knowing the law will not save you. We have to know and understand that works of the law will not save us. As Paul has shown us by his own example, all the things that Paul gained by conformity to the law and following uh, the the practices of Judaism are, are worthless. All those things that were counted to him as gain are rubbish because they will not ultimately save. No, works of the law, Paul says time and time again throughout all of his letters, works of the law only condemn. They only condemn us. They don't provide that righteousness that's needed to be justified in the sight of God to stand before God righteous. You and I, with all of our moral striving, all of our best efforts to keep God's law, could not add a single bit of righteousness or obedience on top of Christ's own righteousness and his own obedience. Friends, no amount of Bible reading or church going or serving at the local food bank or even evangelizing the lost will save us. It will not save us. All of these things are good, but not one of them is good enough to give you what you need to be saved. And that is the perfect obedience to God's law. And this is exactly what Paul is saying, that um, 
in verse 8, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. We cannot have that righteousness that comes from the law. All of the works that we do may be done with the best of intentions, but all of them are tainted with sin. I believe that Paul here is using himself as an example to get uh, the Philippians, to get you and me to examine our own lives, to ask ourselves, are, are we relying on works of the law? Are you relying on your uh, obedience to God's word to save you? Do you look to yourself or your outward obedience to God's law for your own righteousness? Do you think you're saved because you one time walked down an aisle and, and, and professed faith in Christ? And that's, that's all that you've done? Or do you think you're saved because your grandma prayed for you? Or because you go to church? Or are you saved by faith alone in Christ alone? Do you know Christ? Do you know that works of the law will not save you? In his commentary on this passage, the great reformer John Calvin illustrates this point that Paul is making by having us think of a ship that's being tossed um, on the waves by a bad storm. He says that the men on that ship, were, they're, they're going to, to throw all of their cargo overboard in an attempt to lighten the ship um, for their own safety. They, they throw their cargo overboard to save themselves. They don't throw their cargo overboard, Calvin says, because they despise the items themselves and the riches that they're going to bring. Right? They throw them over uh, in, in a self-serving way. They're willing, these, these men on, on a ship are willing to give up their personal gain rather than drown along with all of their stuff. But it's not because they hate the things that they're throwing overboard. No, they, they throw those things overboard, Calvin says, with regret and with a sigh. But Paul, Calvin goes on to say, is showing us that those things that were once precious to him, that gain that he received from his Jewish heritage and the works of the law that he performed are now garbage. They're refuse. They are offensive to him. And they're worthy only to be rejected and, as Calvin says, thrown away in contempt. Do we get rid of our works of the law, to use Calvin's illustration, just to save ourselves? Out of, out of our, our own uh, desire, like these men who, who throw the cargo overboard to save their ship? Is this, what, is this what we're doing with our works? Or do we, like Paul, throw away our things because they are offensive to us? Do we throw away these works of the law because we know that they not only... Uh, don't make us righteous in the sight of God. They make us unrighteous because they make us rely on ourselves rather than relying on Christ alone. Do you, dear ones, count it all joy to suffer loss for the sake of Christ? If Christ is your Savior, Christ himself tells us you will be reviled and scorned. You will be hated by the world. 
because Christ was reviled and scorned and hated. You and I will suffer loss for the sake of Christ. But will we do so like those who throw their precious cargo overboard in hopes of not drowning? Or like Paul, are you willing to let go of those things that you hold most dear for the sake of knowing Christ? Satan wants to tempt you and me to believe that good things are ultimate things. That a good thing, like following God's law, is ultimate. That it matters most. That it will ultimately give us salvation by our works. Satan wants to tempt us to think, well, how can obedience be a bad thing? God gave us the law. Surely he wants us to follow it, to trust it, right? But friends, this is a lie. Following God's law is a good thing, and it's a thing we must do after coming to faith in Christ, but to think that it will provide the basis for your righteousness is to disregard all of God's word and is to ignore the purpose of the law, which was to be a tutor to us, a guide to show you and me that we cannot fulfill it by our own efforts. We have no hope of obeying God's law perfectly. No, good things are not ultimate things. The law, while a good thing, is not what we need to obey in order to have righteousness before God. The only way to be justified in the sight of God is by faith alone in Christ. And this is the second thing that the Apostle Paul tells us that knowing Christ brings. Not only does it, bring, uh, uh, does it, does it mean that we must know that the law cannot save us, Knowing Christ also means that knowing that righteousness depends upon faith in Christ alone. Works of the law will never save you. Only Christ's work on your behalf will save you. And that's what he says in the final part of verse 9. He says, uh, backing up to the beginning of this sentence in verse 8, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. As Paul has shown in his former life, he thought that he could be made right with God based on his own works on bare obedience to the commands given in the Old Testament. But when he came to know Christ, Paul understood that he could never gain eternal life that way. That's what Christ showed him. No, Paul, just like all of us, needed the alien righteousness of Christ, that righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves and is given to us. Because of our great sin, you and I cannot keep God's law. We know this. We sin every day. No matter how hard we try, we can't, we, we, we are not free from sin. We can resist temptation, but we are sinners. By God's, uh, but, but the thing that we understand, we need to understand when we come uh, to, to understand our own sin and uh, the purpose that God's law plays in our life is that the, the requirements of the covenant of works, 
that God made with Adam in the garden are still in place today. God's law requires perfect obedience, and then he will give access to the tree of life, eternal life. God's law must be fulfilled. God still requires obedience in order to attain eternal life. But how do we do this? What's to be done? What can you and I hope to do? Well, we need someone else to obey on our behalf. Praise be to God that Christ has done it. He has done it all. Our Lord Jesus Christ, by what theologians call his active obedience, perfectly fulfilled all the law's demands. And this righteousness that Christ earned by his perfect work is given to all who trust in him by grace alone through faith alone. The 17th century English Puritan Thomas Brooks, in his book, The Golden Key to Open Hidden Treasures, talks about the active obedience of Christ. He says this, Christ's active obedience was so full, so perfect, so adequate to all the law's demands that the law could not but say, I have enough. I am fully satisfied. I have found a ransom. I can ask no more. Neither was the obedience of Christ fickle or transient, but it was permanent and constant. It was Christ's delight, his meat and drink, indeed his heaven, to be still doing the will of his Father, end quote. The law was perfectly satisfied, fulfilled by the obedience of Christ. That active obedience of Christ was his lifelong conformity to God's word. At no point did our Savior do anything contrary to God's law. His righteousness then, because he perfectly fulfilled the law's demands, his righteousness is given, is imputed to all of those who repent of their sin and believe in Christ. So I ask you, dear one, do you believe in Christ? Is he your hope and your stay? Do you cling to Christ by faith? Or like Paul in his former life, are you relying on works of the law? Repent and believe in Christ. For in order to be saved, you must know Christ and you must know that righteousness depends upon faith in Christ. Well, the final aspect that uh, Paul wants to show us about knowing Christ is that we know his sufferings by sharing in them. And it involves knowing the power of Christ's resurrection. And that final aspect of knowing Christ is in this passage uh, in verses 10 and 11. Paul writes, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Knowing Christ, Paul says, means living in the power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings, and becoming like him in his death. Christ, our Savior, not only lived in active obedience to God's commands all throughout his life, but he also fulfilled all the requirements of what theologians call his passive obedience. That is, Christ obeyed, as Paul says earlier to the Philippians, Christ obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Christ's lifelong active obedience led him to the cross where he obeyed the will of his Father and bore the sins of his people and the wrath of God against sin. Christ our Lord, as we just reflected upon a few days ago on Good Friday, suffered and died. We are called by Paul in this passage to share in Christ's sufferings and to become like him in his death. The Apostle Peter, uh, in his first letter to the churches, tells us more about the suffering that we will endure as Christians. We, as Christians, share in the suffering of Christ. And in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, we read these words. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as if something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter says that we suffer as Christians. Why would we expect this to be any different? Because Christ, our Savior, suffered. Christ suffered, and so you and I will suffer. This is a, a fact of life, and as believers, we share in the sufferings of Christ in that we share in the, the, revile, the reviling and, and the scorning of the world against Christ and the ways of Christ and the followers of Christ. Jesus says, the world hated me, it will hate you. Paul tells us that we are to share in his sufferings, but we also become like him in his death. What does this mean? Becoming like Christ in his death involves two things. It involves the mortification of the flesh, mortification of our sin, and uh, the, the, the death of our bodies. You and I are called to kill our sin. Every day we are to be about the business of mortifying our remaining sin. We are hopefully progressing in our sanctification in the Christian life. And part of doing that means we kill our sin. We resist temptation when it comes. And so every day we must, in the power of the Spirit, kill our remaining sin. We must die to ourselves just as Christ himself died for us as our scapegoat, as our propitiation, our wrath bearer. And so that's the first thing that this becoming like Christ in his death means. But it also means that we physically die. You and I and everyone we know will one day die. But look at what Paul says in verse 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We become like Christ in his death by dying to ourselves and by physically dying. But we don't do so without hope. 
No, we do so with the sure hope that Christ will, rec- will return, the knowledge that Christ rose from the dead, that death did not hold our Savior down, and that Christ will once again return and in his second advent usher in a new heavens and a new earth where we will behold our Savior face to face and live with him for all eternity. We look forward with eager anticipation to that great day when our eternal souls will be reunited with with our physical bodies which have died, but which will be made alive again in Christ. That's the great hope we have in the resurrection of Christ, and that's what the resurrection of Christ uh, shows us. Just as death could not hold Christ down, so too all of those who are in Christ will not be held down by death. Death will not have the final word, but we, like Christ, will be raised again. You and I will die, yes. Everyone we know will die, but that is not the end of the story. Death could not hold our Savior down. The grave could not contain him. And three days after Christ hung from that cursed tree, he burst forth from the borrowed tomb, the conqueror of sin and death and hell and the devil. In the resurrection of Christ, death itself died. And Christ's resurrection is the guarantee that death will not have the final word. It's the, the, the resurrection is that wonderful proclamation that all who are in Christ will along with Christ in his name and by his power, be raised again to new life. And that's what it means to know the power of Christ's resurrection. It's that we live our lives knowing that Christ, our Lord, is the great victor. He is victorious. It's that wonderful word that he gives in the book of Revelation that Christ died, and behold, he is alive forevermore. And Christ himself holds the keys of death and Hades. The resurrection, then, is the essential assumption of all that Paul is saying here. It's only because of Christ's resurrection that Paul has hope when suffering. That is, when Paul is sharing in the suffering of Christ, when you or I are sharing in those sufferings of Christ, it's only possible to endure them because of the resurrection. The resurrection is the guarantee that suffering will not last forever, that it's bound to life in this world, that it will pass, that it will fade away with a sigh when Christ returns to conquer all his and our enemies. When Christ comes back, he will usher all of his people into eternal life with him, where our joy and our song will be Christ himself, our suffering servant, the lamb who was slain, who is also the lion upon the throne. Beloved, death cannot win. Christ's resurrection puts the nail in death's coffin. Our enemy's doom is sure. Because death could not hold our Savior down. Dear ones, no amount of moral striving will bring you any closer to God. 
No number of good works, no amount of rule keeping will allow you to stand before God justified and blameless. You can never do enough. If you and I were justified by our works, there would be no end to the good deeds that we would have to do. Now, if we commit even one sin, we could spend a million lifetimes doing good deeds and never do enough to atone for that one sin. As Paul says, you and I cannot put any confidence in the flesh. Even Paul's law-keeping as a Hebrew of Hebrews was not enough to save him from the wrath of God. You and I cannot hope in our own works. The only way to be justified in the sight of God is not through our works, but through faith in Christ and in looking to Him and understanding that He has done it all. Christ, when He was hanging upon the tree, said, It is finished. The work is completed. And you and I can only be saved by God's grace grace through faith in Christ. Everything else we have must be counted loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord. Is Christ Jesus your Lord? Or are you trusting in yourself for your salvation? Christ alone is the way and the truth and the life. And if you don't know Christ, you are doomed to spend eternity paying for your sin. That sin which you commit each and every day against our holy and righteous God. So come to Christ. Believe in Him by faith. Know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. And live in the power of His resurrection. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you and praise you for Christ our Lord who rose from the dead. Three days after, it seemed as though all hope was lost. Christ burst forth from the grave. We thank you for Christ. We pray, O oh God, that we would live in the power of his resurrection, knowing that it's not by our own works, but by Christ's works that we are saved. It's only by faith in the finished work of Christ that we have eternal life. We have the assurance of our faith. We pray, O oh God, that we would live in the power of Christ's resurrection by your Spirit, looking to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter, the finisher of our faith. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Well, dear ones, let's stand once again and sing praise to our great...